0: Kia ora, I'm Bonnie Harrison and welcome to The Details Long Read. It's one in-depth story read by us every weekend. This week, it's actually two stories, both from Newsroom and both looking at the same issue – They're about the dangers facing the crown jewel of New Zealand's national parks, Fiordland. Surprisingly, there are no fishing or tourism restrictions on Fiordland's sounds, and overuse is beginning to show. The first story is from postgraduate Massey University journalism student Heidi Bendixson, a fiordless national park, where she investigates conservationists' claims that marine life has been put at risk because the park's waters are unprotected. Then, Theano freelance writer Vanessa Bellou looks at the effect of the cruise ship business in Milford. This is A Fiordless National Park by Heidi Bendixson. When Fjordland's glaciers retreated, the sea took its place. Surrounding mountains, towering up to 2,000 metres above sea level, still bear the glacier's scars. Ice melt and rainwater collect tannins from the forest foliage before cascading down the cliffs. The result is a tea-coloured layer of fresh water which filters light, creating an illusion of depth and allowing rare black coral, usually restrained to deep waters, to thrive at diveable depths. Bottlenose dolphins breed here, carefully timing their mating to ensure their babies survive in the freezing waters. Many people, from UNESCO to visiting politicians, as well as prominent conservationists, have asked the same question. Why is this fragile and unique ecosystem not part of the Fiordland National Park? Anyone who asks is usually given the same answer. They have never been part of a national park. It cannot be done. But that is not quite right. If any one person embodies the fight to put the fjords back in the park, it's Lance Shaw. Sitting in his lounge in a Sea Shepherd t-shirt in his small house at the edge of Fjordland, Shaw is never short of an expletive when it comes to describing the lack of marine protection in the fjords. With his wife Ruth, he has tirelessly advocated to protect Fjordland's marine treasures from destruction by uncontrolled fishing. Everybody in New Zealand should know that the biggest national park is without the fjords, he says. Shaw might be described as a poacher-turned-gamekeeper. He spent four years as a crayfisherman in Fjordland before becoming a park ranger, manning the Department of Survey and Land Information vessel, the Renown, to monitor the park and assist visiting scientists. He remembers vividly the day DSL was replaced by DOC, or the Department of Conservation. It was 1987, the year of New Zealand's National Park Centennial, yet the park ranger service was being disbanded. Shaw had escaped the redundancies, but his title changed, from park ranger to conservation officer. A new uniform arrived for him, fresh pressed and bearing the green dock logo. New dock signs were erected at every junction, every building. He'd been told the restructure was about saving money, but it was being spent everywhere he looked. Shaw remembers glancing at the uniform before shoving it into a drawer. Eventually, he became too green for the dock shirt anyway. When he spotted a letter in the dock workshop saying staff were not allowed to advocate for marine reserves, it was the final straw, and he left the position to set up a water-based ecotourism business with Ruth. Throughout the 1990s, they continued to advocate for the fjords being included in the park, writing letters to DOC and Members of Parliament. In the late 1990s, in response to Lance and Ruth's letters, they started getting replies saying they could rest assured marine protection was coming. What very few Kiwis know is that the protection used to be there until the government took it away. Wind back to 1952. In Fiordland, the park's rangers are getting worried. There is a crayfish boom on and fishing boats are pouring into the fjords to plunder the white gold. They need bait. Armed with rifles, they start shooting up the park. Seals, penguins, birds, deer, anything that moves. The park's board tries to prosecute but are advised by the government's legal drafting office they do not have the power to do so. Despite the boundaries of the map, they say the marine areas of Fiordland are not part of the park. The Director-General of Lands sought to rectify the matter, sending a draft amendment of the National Parks Act to the Minister of Lands, explaining there was a conflict between the map of the park, which cuts across the mouths of the fjords, and the written description. The Marine Department, which managed fishing and boating regulations at the time, was consulted. It claimed to be sympathetic to DSL's concerns, but resisted its efforts at every turn. The Secretary of Marine wrote to the Director-General, I am not happy regarding the effect the proposed clause may have on the rights to fish and navigate in these sounds. Eventually, the Marine Department got its way. In 1978 the same year precious black coral was discovered in the fjords, the matter was laid to rest by an order in council. The national park was redefined to end at the mean high water mark. It was the nail in the coffin for any argument the fjords might be part of the national park and they were to remain without any protection for more than 25 years. Meanwhile, pressure on wildlife increased. Lobster fishers kept plundering the rocks and canyons, raking through the black coral. Tourist boats surged through fragile dolphin breeding pods. Cruise ships ploughed up and down the sounds. Years of pressure from Lance Shaw and others led to acknowledgement that more protection was needed. The Guardians of Fiordland, an industry-led group of fishers, iwi representatives and scientists who devised their own management plan and Fiordland's first marine reserves, was established. It was eventually enshrined as a statutory advisory group, Fiordland Marine Guardians, or FMG, under the Fiordland Marine Management Te Moana o Atu Whenua, Act 2005, or the FMMA. Dr Rebecca McLeod says she was critical of the FMMA at first. She was a student studying marine biodiversity at the time. But now, as FMG chair, her perspective has changed. It is such a remote place that if we want people to abide by rules and regulations that are established, we need them to buy into the reasoning behind those rules and regulations and be supportive of them. It's all about building that community, and that's really why the Fiordland model has been successful, she says. The Fiord's big success story was the return of Rock Lobster to the Fiords, something even Shaw acknowledges is quite extraordinary. The Fiordland Guardians model has been lauded nationally and internationally, but Sue Maturin, the Forest and Bird Otago Southland Regional Manager when FMMA was enacted, was disappointed. We wanted much more extensive reserves and the outer coasts as well as the entrances protected, she says. The Act said there would be a review in 2010, and they did do a review, but they didn't really look at the effectiveness of the marine reserves, which we would have expected in the marine review. We think we still need to do a review of the effectiveness of the size and location of the marine reserves. Maturin acknowledges the work done by FMG and their philosophy among stakeholders for give and take. But from nature's perspective, she says, they have given more than they have gained. FMG's current concern centres on recreational fishing, particularly charter boats. While commercial fishing works to a quota, recreational fishing is less predictable and growing. But Ian Carrick, Southern Sport Fishing Club member and Fiordland Recreation and Conservation Trust trustee, says recreation fishers are unfairly targeted based on anecdotal evidence. We don't go in to pillage. We go in to enjoy the whole experience, says Carrick. Fishing is not the only activity impacting the fjords. non charter tourism boats operate out of Milford and Doubtful Sound, and the region is a popular detour for cruise ships. In 2001, fewer than 30 cruise ships visited Fiordland. By 2019, that figure exceeded 130. With each boat comes the risk of oil spills, invasive species, and marine mammal strikes and disturbances. We'll look at this issue more closely shortly. Tourists on the MV Sinbad head to the bow to take a photo of the waterfall. A lone shag sits beside the gushing water. It is the only wildlife the tourists have encountered on the trip so far, but that is not to say it is not there. Dolphins may be just around the corner. Tourism operators once actively sought the seals and dolphins that made Doubtful and Milford home, trying to compel them to put on a show but the impact from doing so could be disastrous. Professor Steve Dawson from Otago University's Department of Marine Science says fiordland waters are coldest in spring when ice melt flows into the fjords, so dolphins born in January are most likely to survive. If calves are born any other time, even in February, it's too late. They will still not have sufficient insulation to protect them from the icy waters come spring. While this may seem a random birth month lottery, Dawson says a third of the Fiordland bottlenose dolphins have realised that January is the best time to birth and they ensure that this is the case. So they literally decide when to start bonking, Dawson says. With so much riding on copulation at the correct time, it is vital the dolphins' pod behaviour is not artificially disturbed. But this is exactly what happens if boats get too close. Dawson is aware of one charter boat that used to charge right through a pod. Others would intentionally steam around the dolphins at speed in order to generate enough wake so they would surf. This would split the group because the young thrill seekers would go in and ride the stern wave and jump out and put on a show, he says, and the mums and calves would head off in the other direction because that's not the kind of scene that they wanted at all. Research into dolphins' spatial awareness within the fjords led to voluntary marine mammal management guidelines in Doubtful Sound. Dawson describes them as the best example of operator-led regulation he has seen, especially for those operators who adopted the guidelines into their corporate code of conduct. However, the code is voluntary, and despite the efforts of FMG and DOC, Not all vessels may be aware of it, and there is no single entity monitoring the number of boats in the fjords. Last year, Environment Southland resolved to pause fjordland surface water consents until they have updated the regional coastal plan to maintain the area's wilderness values. However, cruise ships are not included, nor are commercial and non-charter recreational fishing vessels, which are governed by the Ministry of Fisheries, or MAF an institution which, much like its predecessor, the Marine Department, is focused on fishing interests. Has the Guardian model really worked? Would it be easier if the waters were simply part of the national park, as they originally intended to be? Green Party Member of Parliament and former Conservation Minister Eugenie Sage says the fjords' exclusion from the park is problematic – She adds that regional councils are generally reluctant to restrict fishing to protect biodiversity, even though the courts have found they may do so. That, I think, is just symptomatic of our failure to recognise our marine environment generally, she says, for the diversity of its habitats, endemic marine species... Aotearoa's importance as a hotspot for seabirds and for how much damage we are doing to the oceans through commercial fishing, recreational fishing pressure in some areas, poor land management and sediment inflows and plastic pollution. When Fiordland was inscribed as a World Heritage Site, the World Heritage Committee recommended that the waters and seabed come under the control of park authorities. Fiordland's marine areas were added to the World Heritage Tentative List – in 2007, but have not been nominated, and New Zealand's Minister of Conservation, Porto Williams, says there are no plans to do so. The current focus of conservation efforts for Te Namu World Heritage Area has been on improving the management of existing sites, including working in partnership with Tangata Whenua, she says. Cabinet papers from 2007 note that eventual inscription as a World Heritage Site would put New Zealand under an obligation to undertake appropriate management of the site. Representatives from Ngai Tahu declined to be interviewed on the matter, but their media liaison pointed to a recent press release which said, Ngai tahu and the Mana Whenua panel do not support expanding the national parks within our tākiwā. The National Parks Act restricts Ngai Tahu from undertaking our kaitiaki rights and responsibilities, while limiting the meaningful involvement of Ngai Tahu in decision-making. Maturin thinks the discussion around including the fjords in the National Park makes for an interesting bit of history, but is not what they really need. She would rather see enhanced protection of marine life through the mechanisms already in place, the marine reserves, but larger It is unclear at this point what a national park over a marine area would mean. The National Parks Act 1981 does not acknowledge such a thing. With Fiordland representing 40% of New Zealand's rock lobster exports, an annual export value of around $350 million, it is unlikely there would be much appetite for restrictions on commercial fishing. As for Lance Shaw... He is not overly concerned about what bureaucratic processes used to protect the fjords. I think national parks are good because, quite apart from anything else, it kind of just says, hands off, he says. If that is too much to ask, could we have a very strongly graded marine reserve? Covering all of the fjords, not just bits. Because at the moment, they're just picking a few bits. And people are saying, well, isn't it wonderful, you know? Well... It's a step in the right direction. That was A Fjordless National Park by Heidi Bendixson, published on newsroom.co.nz. This is Cruising for a Bruising, Dollars versus Nature in Milford Sound by Vanessa Ballou. Milford Sound pio, pio tahi a pristine fjordland destination called the Eighth Wonder of the World by Rudyard Kipling, is just another day at sea for about a quarter of a million cruise ship passengers who will visit this season. However, if tourism planners get their way, the enormous floating hotels will be banned from the UNESCO World Heritage Site. If we are talking about trying to protect the most magical place in New Zealand, then cruise ships are inconsistent with that protection, with that magic, says Keith Turner, a former boss of Meridian Energy and chair of Milford Opportunities. The group, set up with central and local government backing and mana and tourism industry representation, has developed a Milford Sound master plan, and cruise ships are not on it. The plan is a response to rapid growth in Milford tourist numbers and the effect they are having on the environment and visitor experience. In 2019 numbers peaked at 870,000, more than double the tally of six years earlier. Turner says the cruise industry sells expensive trips at the cost of the environment and the pristine picture in cruise operator marketing is at odds with reality. If you look at the objective of the Milford master plan, Pio Pio Tahi as it was forever, he says... Then it's very hard to imagine it being as it was, with modern cruise liners coming in there, spewing out smoke, and putting the very place that we hold dear at risk. This season, 109 cruise ships will visit Milford, most of them overseas-owned and operated. Shutting them out of the fjord would have massive flow-on effects, says New Zealand Cruise Association head Kevin O'Sullivan. Two operators have said removing Fiordland from their itineraries would strike the South Island from their schedules. O'Sullivan says that would cost the country several hundred million dollars in lost revenue. The association has expressed its concern about a possible ban to Milford Opportunities several times, he says. According to Turner, when cruise ships enter Milford, they can sit there for an hour or two puffing out smoke, and if it's calm, pristine and clear you get a dirty blue inversion layer. He says that is completely inconsistent with what has been sold to the visitor. In the event of a natural disaster or grounding, a cruise liner carrying thousands of people would be extraordinarily difficult to recover, requiring a lot of equipment and manpower, he says. The sound is at the southern tip of the Alpine Fault, which Turner says has a 75% chance of rupturing in the next 50 years in a magnitude 8 or greater earthquake, potentially triggering a tsunami up to tens of metres high. A ship grounding would destroy the critical attraction that brings most of our tourists to New Zealand, and that's a very high cost for the benefit of very few people who don't pay, he says. University of Auckland Urban Planning Senior Lecturer Timothy Welch says the return of cruise ships is an opportunity to assess their environmental harm and financial benefit. It's crazy how big the environmental impact a single cruise ship can have from the air to the sea, says Welch. Ships typically have exhaust cleaning systems, or scrubbers, that remove most emitted sulphur before it enters the air. The problem, Welch says, is some of the devices dump the recovered chemicals at sea, potentially harming marine life, and contributing to ocean acidification. The ships also dump untreated sewage and contaminated grey water, amounting to billions of litres a year, he says. He points out the $500-plus plus million a year the cruise industry is worth to New Zealand is a drop in the bucket compared to the $17.5 billion overall spend by international tourists. The cruise industry certainly has a much bigger footprint in terms of the damage it does or can potentially do. Welch says. O'Sullivan says the industry is continually working to reduce emissions and improve its environmental footprint, and some of the criticism directed at it is not based on science. Modern liners burn low-sulfur fuel, and their scrubbers remove particulates as well as residual nitrogenous waste, he says, leaving just water vapour coming from their funnels. Cruise liners that visit New Zealand have well put together systems to deal with waste, such as sewage, that avoids discharges into the water, he says. Environmental Southland monitors cruise ships to make sure they are adhering to their agreed responsibilities. The cruise lines are required to have insurance to cover any costs associated with an oil spill or grounding. But there are concerns that the nearest Maritime New Zealand pollution control equipment is stored at Bluff – 300 kilometres from Milford. Any Milford cruise ship ban is likely to be years away. Turner says the task before Milford Opportunities is to prove the feasibility of not just the ban, but the group's total master plan. The project has to grapple with complex implementation issues and about two years of planning and policy work is required before any work can start on the ground. (laughs) That was Cruising for a Bruising Dollars versus Nature in Milford Sound by Vanessa Ballou, published on newsroom.co.nz. The details long read is produced by Newsroom with support from the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Kakitzeano.